This is Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? Hey, welcome to Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? I'm Molly Stillman, and this is a podcast where I get to sit down with a different guest each week and have raw, funny, often brutally honest conversations about the things that matter most, faith, business, life, and everything in between, where we each learn how to be good stewards of the things we've been entrusted with, even our stories, and how we can use those things to serve others and leave our families, communities, friendships a little better. I want to create a space where people are unafraid to be themselves and unafraid to ask the questions the rest of us are thinking. My goal is to make you laugh, cry, and laugh till you cry. My guest this week is the incredible Michael Hyatt. Michael is the founder and chairman of Full Focus, and he's also the author of several New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestselling books, including Platform, Living Forward, Your Best Year Ever, Free to Focus, and The Vision Driven Leader. With his daughter, Megan, who was on the show last week, he is the co-author of Win at Work and Succeed at Life, and the author of the new book, Mind Your Mindset. I'm so excited about this conversation. I have been a longtime fan of Michael Hyatt and his work, and it has been a dream to have him on the show. And so I'm so excited to have him on the show this week. And I'm telling you, if you loved Megan last week, you're going to love Michael this week. And we are talking all about the role of imagination in problem solving, what it looks like to kickstart our imagination, especially when it comes to goal setting, and why our brains continue to keep us stuck in these old habits. And it is just so good. We also talk about becoming the friend that you wish you had. And we talk about dreams and the things that we kind of told ourselves over the years or areas where we felt like we were failures. Oh my gosh, this is just so good. So rich. You're going to learn and glean so much from this conversation. So without further ado, on to my chat with the Michael Hyatt. Well, today is a very exciting day. I have with me Michael Hyatt, uh, the inimitable Michael Hyatt. Welcome to the show, Michael. How are you? Thanks, Molly. Good to be with you. I am so pumped about this. Um, I was just telling you before we started recording, but wanted to share with the audience. I I mean, I've followed your work for years and uh, we have a mutual friend um, in Cody Foster, who's the uh, CEO and co-founder of Advisors Excel, who actually podcast listeners, you can go back to my episode from June where I had Cody on, um, but he's a longtime friend. And I know that you've done a lot of work with AE and you had actually spoken at the annual AE event that my husband and I go to every year in Vegas, like right before the world shut down. So like one of my like last big event memories is, is with you uh, as one of the keynote speakers. I think that was the last big event I did live before the pandemic hit yeah. and everything pivoted to digital. Yeah, it's crazy cuz I remember so vividly we were in the Vegas airport coming home and I was reading the news and I was like, "Wow, I, they just what? found the first case uh at Raleigh Durham Airport, like where where we're going. That's crazy. I wonder if this will, be, you know, it just it's so funny to look back now on oh hindsight on all those things." <laughs> um, I thought it was going to be no big deal. I know. I think we all did. Ah, uh, RIP 2 weeks to slow the spread. Um we love it. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Um, well, I'm so excited about this. And uh, for the listeners, they got the just pleasure of having your daughter, um, Michael or Michael Hyatt, um, Megan Hyatt Miller on the show last week. And she's no stranger to the show who she is just a joy. She and I have both said that like, 
I think if we lived near each other, we would probably be best friends. Um, oh, I bet you would. She, she is yeah. just such a delight and a treat. And so last week we talked a lot about more of the mindset aspect of uh, your new book, Mind Your Mindset, the science that shows success starts with your thinking that you co-wrote with Megan. And so we talked a lot about the mindset aspect of things. And so uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit about goal setting. And I've got a couple things I want to talk with you about. But before we do that, you got to do what all my guests do, and that's give us the Michael 101. So tell us who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are today. Well, I spent most of my career in the book publishing field. So I think I played every role in book publishing. I was an editor. I was a marketer. I was a salesperson. And then most recently, I was the chairman and the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, which at the time was the seventh largest book publisher in the U.S., we sold the company to Harper Collins, and I chose to make an exit, start my own business called Full Focus with Megan. Megan's now the CEO of our company. But uh, what else can I tell you? I've written about 20 books now, and most recently, Mind Your Mindset, which you mentioned. It's brand new. And I have five daughters, of whom Megan is the oldest, and I have 10 grandkids. I've been married to my wife, Gail, for 44 years. And here's the cool thing. All my girls live within 20 minutes. All my grandkids are within five five minutes of my home. So we're very tight-knit family. I, as a mom of young kids, my my kids are uh, nine and six, almost seven. <laughs> All the emotions. Um, it, that just makes me really happy. Um, and because I... I I really pray that, uh, so we live on a farm and we have some space. And so I tell my kids all the time, I'm like, when you guys get older, you guys going to just want to like build your house here, right here. And then I can just watch your kids and it'll be great. <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty awesome. And it, there was a time when I wanted to move and not leave a forwarding address, you know, because like the kids were, you know, I just, they were at that age where mm -hmm. I just wanted my distance, but now it's fantastic. You know, the girls especially are really our closest friends. And they're really tight with their mom, mm. which is really cool. Mm. Well, that that just gives me so much encouragement and hope uh, to to hear from somebody who's kind of on the other side of it. And okay, you gotta you gotta just tell us is like grand. Oh, what do the when do the grandkids call you? Are you like Papa, Granddad? Well, I'm Granddaddy, but Megan's daughter Naomi, who's three, maybe almost four now, she calls me Gandhi, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. I don't know where that came from, but I kind of like that one. Okay. So I love that. And I love when kids come up with their own name. And I'll tell you, um, my, my husband is an only child. And so when we were pregnant with our first, um, I remember we asked my in-laws, you know, what do you want to be called? You know, do, and, and my father-in-law was like, I want to be Papa because I, you know, my dad was Papa John. So I want to be Papa John. And we were like, okay, cool. Papa John. Great. But then I asked my mother-in-law, I said, what do you want to be called? She was like, well, whatever comes out, you know, whatever she says. And then, of course, like once my daughter was about speaking age, my mother-in-law was like, okay, grandma, grandma. Well, it came out, bama, um, Obama. <laughs> and then um, so my, my mother-in-law was like, uh, and I was like, no, 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 no. You said <laughs> that it's whatever she says. And so here today, she is Bama. We have Papa and Bama, but I love it. Uh, and it just, it's, it makes it that much more personal because you know, you're never going to be in a store and hear like, Gandhi, Gandhi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so distinctive. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think I'm a Mahatma Gandhi. And <laughs> 
no comparison you're, to them, but you're basically yeah. exactly the same. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, all right. So I, I love it. We could clearly have an entire episode where we just talk about grandkids and uh, funny things kids say. Um, but let's talk about goal setting um, because okay. this is obviously an area that you are, you know, a bit of an expert in. It's like, a, it's kind of your thing. Um, and so I love the way that you guys, especially with this book, have really gotten deep into the science behind how our brains work when it comes to our mindset and goal setting and, and dreaming and all of that. And there was um, something in this that it had just never, I don't know, I'd, I'd never really thought about it. And it's this idea about the, the role of imagination in mm-hmm. problem solving, in goal setting, in all of those things. And I, it just really kind of got me thinking and imagining a lot about, you know, at what age that starts to shift. Because I look at my kids now who are, you know, nine and six, and they are all about imagination. I mean, they are always playing some kind of makeup, you know, make believe game, or they've created these little worlds in their head, or, you know, they'll take, you know, a rock and they turn it into, you know, a castle or my daughter, uh, I, I can look out my office window right now and I can see the little quote unquote house she built outside where the fake fireplaces and the fake living room. And I can see all that. And I, remember thinking like, at what age do we kind of lose that? And how, what role that plays in our lives as adults? So I would love for you to kind of kick this conversation off with that, because I think it's such a great and unique starting point. Well, I think when we're young, there's no limit to our imaginations. We haven't had enough life experience yet to kind of shut down that sort of expansive thinking that represents imagination. Mm -hmm. And as we go through life, a couple of things happen. We get experience that shows us, you know, we're fallible. We're going to make mistakes. Right. And unfortunately, those get sort of incorporated into the story about us that our inner narrator tells us. Like, you know, we're not very good with money or, you know, we've got to be more realistic or whatever. And then I think in, in, in addition to that, society reinforces it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you're kids, you say, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And a kid says, you know, I want to be an astronaut. Oh, that's amazing. Or I want to be the president of the United States. You know, good for you. You can do this. And then you get a little bit older and you get that response from a kid and you go, uh, you need to be more realistic. That's mm. not going to happen. Mm. And so society kind of, of shuts us down. But this is all under the framework of the stories that we're telling to ourselves. So the people that are smarter than us or the people that have accomplished more than us, a lot of times the only difference is they're just telling themselves a different story. It's not that they're that much smarter. It's not that they have more contacts or more financial resources and all that may be part of it. But the reason they do is because they they have a different story that they're telling to themselves. And somehow they preserve that ability to imagine a bigger, better future. Okay. I think that is really fascinating. And you're right. I, th- I, I think about in my own life about how there were so many things like when I was a kid, my life dream was to be on Saturday Night Live. Like that was my, and if you'd ask me, oh yeah, yeah. hundred percent. When people find that out, they're like, this is the least surprising information that I've ever <laughs> received. Um, is like, yeah, is the fact that when I tell people, I'm like, yeah, I have a background in improvisational and sketch comedy. And I did that for many, many years. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, not surprising at all. But I, you know, I, that was from a 
very early age, that was what I wanted to do. And I mean, I remember watching old sketches with, you know, Gilda Radner and Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase. And then, you know, I grew up kind of in the era of, you know, kind of Eddie Murphy and, you know, Mike Myers and obviously into Will Ferrell and, and, you know, but then I saw, you know, people like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. And I was like, I, I can do that. Like, I want to do that. That is my thing. But then it was the real world when I got to, you know, started trying to move to New York. And when I started taking comedy classes and I saw the way that professional comedians were living life and I just was like, I don't know that I can do this anymore, you know. Um, And then I became a Christian and there's like a whole story behind that. But, um, you know, yeah, you're right. It's like there was a combination of society and life experience and all that kind of thing that that kind of. I don't want to say squashed the dream, but made yeah. it more like, ah, I don't know that I can, that I can do that. I, I had a similar experience to that. Interestingly, not in comedy, but in music. Oh, you can see these guitars behind I me. I can see the guitars. And, yeah. Yeah. So in high school, I was a guitar player. I played the bass, the guitar, the piano. I was in rock bands, uh, dropped out of college when I was the end of my first semester, which was an exciting conversation with my dad. Yeah, definitely. Who, was a Marine. And I said, dad, I've got this idea. I want to drop out of college. I've been invited to play in this band and I want to move to this farm and become part of this band. And by by the way, this is a really good parenting tip. Yeah. I thought my dad would flip. He looked at me and he said, you know, I think that's a great idea. Wow. I was like, who are you and what have you done with my dad? (laughs) And, and he said, no, he said, I think it's a good idea. He said, look, you don't have a family. You don't have a lot to risk. If this works, it's all upside. And if it doesn't, you go back into school. So literally the next semester I was back in school because it didn't work out. Mm. But probably like you, you know, I, I started um, and I was a music major. But when I got back into school and continued by being a music major, I saw the unbelievable level of competition. Yeah. And, and I thought to myself, and this was a story, I'm not that good. Mm. You know, I was I was good for kind of the environment I was in in high school. But when I got to college with all these people coming to this school from all over the world and who were extraordinary musicians, I just shut down. Mm -hmm. And so I literally walked off the field before I made a single play. Mm. Man, that's probably a lot of people do that. That's such a good story. And. Uh, an encouragement to me too. And I, I would, I'm curious because this is something that I have really wrestled with and I've gotten to a point where I have a pretty confident answer, but I would be curious what your answer is because granted, I mean, for me and my story, you know, I didn't become a, a follower of Jesus till I was 25. And, um, so it really, I got to a point where in my late twenties and even early thirties, I had a lot of questions with God about God, why do, why do I have this random, set of skills. Why did you put me through these really random experiences in my life? Why did you put this desire in my heart to make people laugh? And why, why did I have this like improv training? And like, what am I supposed to use that for? I have the answer to that question now, but I wrestled with that. And I'm curious, like, did you ever go through that almost like an identity crisis of just like, well, I have this thing that I really loved and I was good at, and now I'm going down a different path. So how do I still utilize that skill? Because I feel like that's a really common thread in a lot of people's stories where they have this thing that they really loved or they were good at, and they don't do that thing anymore, or they their life led them down a different path. 
Did you wrestle with that at all? Totally. Yeah, I, I thought, on the one hand, I love music and I love playing, but it became a job, mm. you know, in school. And, and I thought, do I really want to do this? And do I really want to compete at this level? And for what? And I'd played professionally in this band that I, you know, didn't last long, but I saw how those guys lived. And frankly, the lifestyle didn't appeal to me. And I had just become, I just became a Christian after that experience. And so kind of the, you know, true North for me changed. And so at that point I switched majors. I went from music to philosophy and I intended, which, which there's as, a lot of market value As that, one right? does. <laughs> <laughs> as one does. That's what does. And knowing, knowing that that would, you know, open up all the doors. Uh, but seriously, I, I thought I would go to seminary and I would become a pastor of some sort. And in fact, I did go into the ministry for a few years. But then I realized that's not really my calling. Um, I, I really want to be involved in business. So I was never really tempted to go back to music as a profession. It's always been an avocation, but I really, really love business. And, I, and oddly, I love selling. And so that was kind of my access point into business was through sales. And I discovered that, oh, yeah, literally anything you ever do in business in any aspect of business involves selling somebody mm -hmm. something. Man. So that's served me well. That's really good advice. And on a complete quick digression, I decided, by the way, that in 2023, at the age of 37, that I'm going to learn how to play the guitar. So I've been playing like every single day for the last two weeks and my fingers uh, feel awful and it hurts yes. so bad. And I'm just like my husband who plays guitar is like, keep going. It gets better. I promise. And I'm sitting here like, but Definitely. this hurts. This is so hard. Why, why didn't I do this when I was 15 anyway? So, and, and this, that's all to say that, Hey, you can pick up a new skill when you're 37. It's totally fine. <laughs> you can. And, and I think actually, you know, apropos to your original question, I, I think we're, we're really in a fight to keep our imagination alive. Yeah. You know, we have to make a shift and say, you know, I'm going to think outside of the box. Yeah. I'm going to let my imagination run wild and I'm going to start there. You know, there's a lot of things that you encounter in life that are obstacles that'll, that'll, you know, kind of right size your, your dream, but you got to start out with a big dream. And that takes some intentionality and realizing that that's not the norm anymore mm -hmm. because, you know, just think about the school system. I mean, most people that go to public schools or even private schools, they're basically learning how to be factory workers. Yeah. Right. That's why those schools were invented. And it's designed to take all the variability, all the creativity, all of that out of it. So you can sit there on the assembly line and do what you're told. But of course, then there's homeschooling, there's Montessori schools and all these different things that have flourished because people realize there's got to be more than that. That is a model, but it's not the only model. Yeah, absolutely. A friend of mine from college, and this kind of goes into what you were just saying, is um, a friend of mine from college. So she has been in a very successful uh, wedding photography business. She's a, a an educator in the wedding wedding photography world. Very, very successful. Really mm. high level earner. I mean, runs a you know seven figure business, maybe even eight figure business at this point. And last year, about a year and a half ago, so they have young children. And last year, they decided to start a micro school. And, and cool. they were just like, 
you know, yeah, of course, we're wedding photographers. Like why? Naturally, that's what one would do is start a micro school. Um, And so it's through, uh, I mean, it's an, it's an independent school, but it's kind of through the, I think it's called Acton Academy, which is like the, um, the, like the model. But what it really does is it helps kids to cultivate their imaginations and allow them to almost be the to be the leaders in their education. And so, you know, my my friend Caitlin and her husband Michael, they um they they were like, well, we also we know business, so maybe we can just do this. And so they they started this school, and it's been really a cool thing to watch their journey and and watch their kind of first class of learners go in through this program and how, you know, you have this a, a variety of ages, but all the kids are working together and they, they lead in their learning where they're able to, you know, start businesses if they want or learn about entrepreneurship or, you know, get creative in how they're learning and seeking out. And, and I just think it's so interesting. And I, I would love to see obviously this is a whole another conversation for another day but education move in that direction to encourage kids to by the time they're graduating high school you know they know how to run a business and they know how to be creative and how to uh to to do things in the world um so i guess my question for you then is for the adult or the person that is listening who has lost touch with their imagination. And, and it, maybe it seems um, juvenile, quote unquote, but but it's not because it's God given. Um, what are some of the practical steps that you kind of suggest that people take to get back in touch with that when it comes to, again, to goal setting, to what they want their life to look like, whether they're, you know, 17, 27, 37, 47, 57, 67, you know, like, that your life can start right now, no matter where you are in life. So what are some of those practical steps that people can take to get back in touch with their imagination and and how that works? Well, I'm sure Megan covered this with you when you guys talked. I've not heard that episode yet. But, um, you know, we talk about in the book, Mind Your Mindset, learning to identify the story. This is really where it's going to start. Yeah. And then to interrogate the story so that we can build a better story. And that's really the whole third part of the book. Right. But you got to be conscious of this story because that story that you're telling yourself in your head becomes a controlling narrative that limits the scope of what you think is possible. Right. So, for example, if if you say uh, to yourself, I'm not that good at this thing that I'm trying to do in the world, that's going to limit the possibility of what you can do. For example, if and I had this story for years in my own thinking that I'm not very good with money. Now, that that happened because of some things that happened in my life, some experiences in my life. I founded a publishing company back in 1986 with a business partner. It grew exponentially for the first five years. We were doing great. We had three full-time salespeople. But um, we thought, man, if we just had more salespeople, we could sell a lot more stuff. We could be even more successful. So we got into a distribution relationship with a much bigger publisher. Now, our company was generating about $400,000 a month which we felt like at the time was fantastic. So it was about $5 million a year, $400,000 a month. We thought, um, gosh, if we had 12 full-time salespeople, not just three, could we do four times as much? I don't know. But we got into this relationship and that bigger publisher, the first month out of the gate, they did $40,000 for us. So we went from 400,000 to 40,000, catastrophic. Mm. In terms of cash flow. Yeah. And like we were just reeling, so we call it the CEO like, what the heck? 
And he says, well, you know, sorry about that, our bad, but we're getting used to your products and I'm sure things will pick up dramatically this next month. Next month, got it to about 60,000. Mm. You know, again, we get on the phone, like this is catastrophic. He says, well, I'll tell you what, I know that you guys need that cash. So we'll advance the cash to you in the form of a loan, but we'll eventually get to the place where we can make that up. So fast forward nine months later, and the the parent company decides they want to sell this division off that had loaned us the money and with whom we were in this relationship with. And so they said, oh yeah, we're calling your loan. You've got, you're going to got to pay back 1.2 million and you got 30 days to do it, or we're foreclosing on your company. Long story short, they foreclosed on our company. Mm. So I can remember sitting uh, in an office with my business partner. They had come and taken all the furniture. The only thing left in the entire office, all of our employees were gone, just the two of us sitting in this room, crying, literally. And the only thing in the office was a telephone. This was the old style that was wired into the wall. Oh, yeah. That was it. That was it. It was humiliating. It was enormously embarrassing. And I came to the erroneous conclusion is, was that I just am not very good with money or this always happens. Mm. Then fast forward, about a year or two later, I was sitting on an airplane with a friend of mine. I was kind of telling him some of this story. And he said, you know, you're not very good with money, are you? Now, Molly, it didn't occur to me to question the veracity of that story. You know, here he is here in a few facts. He comes to this universal conclusion mm. about how I am with money. And I accepted it because it was an authority figure, yeah. like it was the truth. Right. And I thought, okay, that validated my worst fears. And I guess I'm not very good with money. And so one of the things that we teach in the book in the third part of this is as a strategy for kind of firing up our imagination and imagining a better story is to imagine the opposite. And so if I said to myself, instead of I'm not very good with money, what if I said, I'm great with money, or if that's too far of a stretch, you know, money's like anything else. I can learn to do it better. And to ask myself the question, you know, what would have to be true for me to be great with money? If I said to myself, I'm great with money, or I'm learning to be great with money. Mm. And then to ask myself the question, what would have to be true? Well, I guess I'd have to learn about investment vehicles. I guess I'd have to learn, you know, how the world of money works and how the stock exchange, all that stuff is, to quote Marie Forleo, figure outable. Right. But it starts with a story. You know, I have to believe that I can do it. And I have to start consciously telling me, a, telling myself a different story. Now, what's really interesting is you talked about playing the guitar and you know how it is when you first start, it feels very mechanical, very oh, yeah. rote. You know, you're, you're kind of forcing yourself. Like if you're doing scales, you like have to like consciously remember this is where it goes and this is where my fingers go. And you're just going like, this is incredibly boring, hurts my fingers, I wanna quit. But, and this is true with affirmations, it's true with telling ourselves a different story. It's awkward at first, but it gets easier over time. Because literally what's happening inside of our brain, and this is part of what I love that we do in this book, is, is that the neuroscience would tell us that all these habits are, all these habitual ways of thinking are, are neural pathways. Yes. Where it's called Hebb's Law, but cells that fire together, wire together. And so when these neurons fire, you have a trigger, and then your brain goes down this path. Something happens. I, I literally just had this happen this morning. And I could, I could sense my thinking 
going through this where a well-worn path in my brain. And you have to literally to, to use a, this as a vinyl record analogy. So not everybody will get this, but uh, you know, you have to literally pick up the arm of the record player and move it to a different place to cut a different groove. Yeah. And so that, that takes some, some effort, Yeah, but it does, does get easier. Yeah. So I, I used to have, I don't know if Megan told you this story, but she had a real problem with public speaking. Yeah, she did. She talked, we, she? we talked about that. Yeah. I did too. Wow. And so literally when I would, before I would step up on stage, first of all, I dreaded it. I hated it. I didn't want to do it. I, I would rather die than step up on the stage. My hands would get super sweaty. Sometimes I'd wear two t-shirts hoping that I didn't sweat through the t-shirts <laughs> and give myself away that I was scared to death. Mm. Um, a stomach, I'd have butterflies, all that stuff. I wanted to throw up until I said, wait a second, what if this adrenaline, because that's what it was, yeah, that's causing all this, what if this is a God-given thing? What if this is how my body, based on God's design, prepares itself for peak performance. Because think about what an amazing, wonderful thing adrenaline is. It makes you think faster. Mm -hmm. It makes you think better. It, it, you know, when you're on stage, you come up with stories that you didn't even think of in rehearsal or when you're in your preparation, you're hyper vigilant and focused on your environment. So it enables you to really connect with the audience yeah. And that's possible because of adrenaline. So now before I get up on stage, I still feel a lot of the same things. My hands will sweat and I'll get a little few butterflies in my stomach and I go, good, that's the adrenaline. And that's going to help me in this situation. So start by adopting the opposite. Yeah, I, yeah, I completely, yeah, we talked, we talked a bit about that and it's, I loved your analogy of the record player. So I actually used an analogy of, um, path like in the woods. And so like we had, cause we, again, everything here is like, I live on a farm. And so, you know, I was walking through the woods and we have these paths that exist in our woods. And then, um, but you know, if I want to create a new path, I have to literally cut away trees and I have to cut away grass and Perfect. all of that in order to create a new path in the woods. And, uh, but yeah, I, you know, and I, I can see that especially too the, with the way you described with guitar, because, you know, I've been playing guitar at this point for a week and a half. Okay. Um, uh, but that first night, the first, you know, the first chord I learned was G and the second chord I learned was C. And I just remember forever sitting there looking at the frets and going, <laughs> I am never going to be able to do this. Like I, I am never going to be able to sit and, and change between chords without looking at it. And, you know, I'm a week and a half in and I can already kind of do that. <laughs> I say Very kind cool. of loosely. Um, but yeah, you know, and I, uh, I just think that giving ourselves the space to rewrite those narratives and, and counteract those narratives of what is possible. And I will tell you, like one of the things that you said just really struck a chord with me personally, because it's, I, I think, you know, I, I think I, I still, I mean, I realized at 37, like probably when I was in my twenties, if you, somebody had said, a 37 year old, I've been like, she's old. I don't think I'm old. I think I'm young and spry. Um, but you know, I have been in sort of the content creation world for a very long time. I've, I've started blogging in 2005. Um, you know, I've been a writer for a really long time. I've been a podcaster for a really long time. And 
I worked on my book proposal for five years before I ever got an agent. And so there was a, I've really had to battle those thoughts in my head where I'm like, I'm never going to be a successful author. I'm never going to be a successful podcaster. I'm never going to be like, I'll see, you know, I, I go into the comparison game where I see what other people are doing. And I'm like, well, they just started their podcast and theirs is already doing, you know what I mean? I like, I would, those lies and that narrative would, would run rampant in my head. And, um, but just last week, uh, I got back from, um, I traveled down to Houston, Texas, and I spoke at this, um, pretty big, uh, church in Houston at their women's, uh, conference. And it was just, it was just such a beautiful event. I had just the best time. The Holy spirit was just all up in it. And it was just a couple of days after I submitted my, my manuscript. Um, and I got home from that and I was sitting with my husband and he had this moment and like my husband who is the best. And I talk about him all the time because he's just, I I'm biased. I think he's the greatest. Um, but he's, you know, he's very different from me and he's not somebody who's going to, his personality type is not the kind where he's not going to give you fluff. He's not going to puff you up just for the sake of it. Like he's real stingy with his compliments, things like that. So that when he says something, you know, like, Oh, he's, he's being for real right now. And he said to me, he said, it's really awesome as your husband to watch you do the thing that you have worked so hard to do. Like you're no longer at the point where you're working towards the thing that you really want to do. You're now actually doing the thing that you've worked to get to. And he's like, I've watched you for seven years work on that book proposal. And you said, there's no way that Thomas Nelson will ever give me because Thomas Nelson was my dream publisher. And I was like, I'll never get a publishing deal with Thomas Nelson. Like that's never going to happen. And I did. And like little things like that, that he's like, you kept telling yourself all these things that weren't true. And he's like, and it's really cool to see how God has like just cultivated this in your life. And so it's, it's a thing that I'm just being really vulnerable right now. Like I've really had to battle against those narratives in my life of being like, I'm never going to be successful. I'm always going to be mediocre. I'm going to be like, okay at a lot of things and not great at a few things, you know? And, and so to hear you share that is really encouraging for me. So for the listeners, thanks for coming to my um, personal therapy session with Michael Hyatt. (laughs) Um, I really appreciate it, (laughs) but I really do appreciate you saying that because I think that there's a a lot of people listening that would feel the exact same way and would say, oh yeah, I have told myself those lies over and over and over again. And I've started to believe them as true. Well, and the problem is, you know, those can be lethal in terms of our future and in terms of goal setting, because if those things are true, why try? Right. Right. So experience I had this last fall, I like I'm really healthy. I've worked on my health for a long time. I've had a personal trainer for over a decade. I've got a nutritionist. Yeah, it takes a village. I've got a whole team. But last September, I was out walking and long story short, I had a heart attack (gasps) in September. Oh, my gosh. And it was mild. Thankfully, um, and there ended up being zero damage. But I went into the hospital, had the ambulance pick me up, the whole thing, went in, got an angiogram done, and they said, um, "Yeah." When I first went in to get the angiogram, they said, "Gosh, you look so healthy. I'm sure. Worst case scenario, you're going to need a stint, but it's probably nothing. Probably kind of an anomaly." But they got in there, and they I woke up from the angiogram, and they said, "Yeah, you've got 90 percent blockage in your widowmaker main artery." And we're going to have to do quadruple bypass surgery. And I was like, stunned. What? Wow. So I did it. And so then I, I, you know, spent 
three months this last fall on medical leave in the recovery process. But in the recovery process, I didn't know this, but by the way, this would this would be a huge opportunity for comedy or for a mockumentary. <laughs> cardiac rehab. Okay, so I'm a cardiac rehab and I'm with seven other patients and our exercises monitor. They have us all wired up and everything. And then once a week, we go sit in this kind of around a table and one of the nurses teaches us something that'll be helpful, like stress management or nutrition or exercise or whatever. And so one of the first sessions she said to us, she said, what does your heart attack mean to you or your heart surgery? What does that mean to you? That's a great question because there's the facts and then there's the meaning that we assign to what we experience. Wow. Two different things, right? So the guy literally right across the table from me, he starts off and he says, well, here's what it means to me. He said, um, I've peaked. He said, this is the beginning of the end. And this is going to be a slow decline until I die. Life as I knew it is over. Wow. I, I was dumbfounded when I heard that. Now, I was blessed in that my doctor called me, one of my doctors in Los Angeles called me when I was still in the hospital and he said, look, he said, nobody knows that your physical health better than I do. He said, I've looked at all your blood work, everything. You've taken great care of yourself. I was literally hiking in the Andes Mountains in Peru six weeks before this happened. He said, but all that's history. And he said, you may be second guessing yourself, wondering, could I have done something different? Could I have done it better? He said, forget all that. That's the past. He said, and he, and he actually quoted a guy named John or uh, Joe Dispenza. And he said, you're either going to be shaped by a memory of the past or by a vision of the future. Hmm. And he said, your life begins now. He said, your future's in front of you. He said, for starters, you have better blood flow to your brain than you've had, you know, in the, in the last several years. So you're on steroids. He said, you've, you've got your whole future in front of you. So I was like totally upbeat, didn't go through any depression as a result of this, but it was such a, a dramatic, dramatically different story than the one I got across from the table had. And, but if you really think you've peaked and this is the beginning of the end, why pay attention to nutrition? Right. Doesn't matter. You know, fried chicken, double cheeseburgers, bring it on. Uh, why exercise? But for me, totally the opposite. But that was all based on the, the stories that we were telling and the way that we were assembling the facts and what we were creating out of those facts. What a powerful story. Um, and mm. just, I mean, praise God that you are still with us and that you are in great health and that your life is like just on the up and up and you have got like all of it right in front of you. Uh, praise God for that. But man, what a lesson that that story is. And I think a challenge to all of us too. And I mean, I'm going to be taking that story with me going forward and being like, man, what is like, what does my life look like from now? Uh, you know, and, 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 that I feel like also gives us great conversations with our children, with our spouses, with our, you know, if, if you have aging parents, like I think that's that kind of question, um, you know, obviously we can reword it a little bit, but how do, you know, the kind of conversations that it can really foster um, in our families of, of how do we imagine what life can look like um, going forward? Well, and one of the things that Megan and I have learned to do in our coaching pra practice, because we have a pretty large business coaching practice is to really listen to our clients' language because their language will reveal their stories. Language is an expression of thought and it's an access point 
if you're coaching somebody or counseling somebody into what they're thinking. And I had an experience, and I think I tell this in the book, but I had an experience where I just sat down in my seat in an airplane and I was on my way to San Diego to Ago to speak at a big event. And I get a call. We're still at the gate. I get a call from a friend of mine. He says, hey, what's up? I said, well, I said, I have to go to San Diego to, to give this speech. Pause. Nothing. He says, wait a second. Did you say you have to go? He said, I don't. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure nobody held a gun to your head. And by the way, it's San Diego. Best right. climate on the planet. Yeah. And for as long as I've known you, you said you wanted to be a public speaker. And now you're going to speak to this big event with thousands of people. He said, it sounds to me like you're living the dream. He said, you don't have to go. You get to go. Well, that one little word betrayed or belied my thinking. Mm -hmm. And my thinking was one of, you know, duty, obligation, drudgery. And that was affecting everything. My whole outlook, I was reticent to go. But after I, I, I started changing my language, and there's always a reciprocal uh, relationship between our language and our thinking. Our thinking expresses our language, and our language can shape our thinking. So now before I have to do anything, because I mean, literally, nobody holds a gun to my head to tell me to do anything, right. maybe other than pay taxes. <laughs> but I, I just say, you know, I get to do this. And even taxes. I get to pay taxes because I'm running a business that makes money. Right. That's awesome. Okay. Well, I know that we are running out of time and there's one other topic that I wanted to touch on. So I want to change gears just a, a okay. hair. Um, and that is one of the other concepts in the book that I really love that I think speaks to um, also like where we are I don't know, culturally right now or societally. Um, and that's one of the, the points that you bring up of, of more brains are better than one and how we bring other people into our goal setting, how we bring other people into our imagination to help us think creatively. Um, and especially if somebody listening who is like, just knows that they're like, I am not a creative person. Like, that's okay. Like God made us all very differently for, you know, and so some of us kind of lean more creatively. Some of us lean a little bit more logically and, you know, love Excel spreadsheets. And that's my husband loves Excel, love has a spreadsheet for everything. Um, whereas that just, you can take Excel out of here with me. Okay. I don't like, I don't like <laughs> spreadsheets, uh, but I do love a checklist, do love a checklist. Um, but you know, so I think, uh, but this idea of bringing other people into this and the reason I say that it kind of speaks to what we're, you know, experiencing culturally is I think, you know, kind of in the quote unquote post COVID area or era, people are realizing that they're lonely, that they've been lonely or that they want, you know, better relationships. And um, so there's just been a lot of talk, at least in my own circles and and, and people I know where they're really focusing on cultivating uh, good, you know, God honoring strong relationships with people in their lives and, and surrounding themselves with people who challenge them to be better and, and, you know, challenge mm -hmm. them to, um, to think differently or, um, you know, live differently. And, you know, there's that, whatever that, that famous quote of like, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with and things like that. So, um, I'd love for you to just kind of briefly talk to us about this concept of, of more brains are better than one. And what does that look like if somebody wants that, but doesn't know where to start? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, I think, you know, God created us to live in communities, mm -hmm. right? So even God himself, the Holy Trinity is a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that, that 
we're not meant to be lone rangers, to be, you know, to try to be existent, existing out here on our own. And in fact, that's a very dangerous place to be left alone with our own thoughts. Oftentimes we can spiral downward. And, but there's nothing more contagious than thinking. Like if you're in an organization that's toxic, where the culture is toxic, it infects everybody. It takes an yeah. enormous amount of work. If you're in a negative culture where there's a lot of gossip and a lot of negative thinking to remain positive and refuse to gossip. And to be honest, when I first went to Thomas Nelson in 1998, that was the kind of culture we had. Hmm. And I thought to myself, I was kind of a mid-level. I was a general manager for Nelson Books, one of Thomas Nelson's 14 book publishing divisions at the time. And I said, look, I, I can influence the whole culture of, you know, almost 700 people and all these different divisions, but I'm pretty sure that I can influence the culture of the people, you know, that are under me, that are in my division. Right. But I said, I've got to be intentional about co building a community of peers, and they don't even have to be inside this company, but people that can influence my thinking, because th there's huge value in walking through life with other people. I love this uh, verse that comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to the one who falls when he was alone. And so to have somebody else so that when you're down or your thinking is going down a negative track, going down that neural pathway that you've created over time, that somebody can, you know, metaphorically slap you and say, hey, get out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're an amazing person. Right. And, I, and so, so that's a huge help. I also think there's real help in divergent thinking. And we talk about this in the book. One of the things that I think is so detrimental to creativity right now in our society is that social media is kind of facilitating more silos where we, we find ourselves more and more with people that think exactly like we do. And one of my mentors told me one time, if two of you think the same thing, then one of you is unnecessary. And so the more we can get divergent communities where we have people that think differently than we do, even from people from different racial or ethnic backgrounds, that enriches our world. It's it's like uh, trying to paint with only a couple of colors, but the more, more divergent your community is, intentionally divergent, obviously within certain parameters, but more intentionally divergent, the bigger the palette is that you can create from, because not everybody has the same life experiences, has the same skill sets, as you pointed out. All of that makes our life richer and creates uh, the ability for us to imagine even greater possibility. Yeah. And I think, too, it, it also speaks to just being intentional about that and recognizing and acknowledging, hey, this is an area of my life where maybe I need to grow and I need to branch out and I need yeah. to, you know, to borrow the the very famous phrase from the Bachelor franchise, put myself out there, you know, <laughs> um, you know, to make new friends, which which can be hard, and especially as an adult, making friends as an adult can be really hard. And, um, you know, but but being really intentional about it. And also, I think there's a lot to be said about being in prayer for that. Um, yes. I, I really, if I'm being honest, I spent a lot of time in prayer in 2020 and 2021 um, after kind of some friendship, I'll say breakups, but breakups, um, where I was like, Lord, I would really just love to be surrounded by, you know, friends that I, you know, cheer me on and I cheer them on and I can go to and, you know, who 
will challenge me to and point me to Jesus and and challenge me to do better and and things like that. And he has answered that prayer so specifically and so intently. And it's been really, really transformational for me um, and my husband in the last, I'd say, 18 months. Wow. It's been really, really cool. And and I I have uh this year is the year that I've determined that I'm just gonna like continue to tell the people in my life how thankful I am for them and why. Um because that's awesome. Because they're an answer to prayer. And so I think that there's a there's a really important piece of that. And also, you know, to your point too about the language we use, is telling ourselves like we are worthy of these relationships. And yes. Because I can guarantee you that you and me and every person listening has had some type of relationship hurt in our lives. And if you haven't, then you just haven't lived long enough. But I mean, I can think about, you know, my first, my best friend when I was in elementary school, quote unquote, broke up with me because I wasn't Christian enough for her. And so how do you think that made me think about friends and the church for many years. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things that I, for a lot, for many years, I was like, well, I, I mean, I can't be friends with Christians cause I'm not Christian. Well, I think, you know, there are a lot of people that are, are just kind of passive. And this again is a story you think, well, I just don't know anybody. Mm. You know, how, how can I find good Christian friends or whatever? Yeah. And I've said to people, some of my clients who as adults struggle with friendships, I say, look, become the friend you wish you had. Yeah. Don't just passively sit back, but be proactive. You know, there are always people that you can love and serve and bless. And that puts you back in the driver's seat too. So then in other words, instead of sort of waiting for God to bring somebody to you and putting the onus on him and upon other other people to reach out to you, no, just take the initiative. Be the friend you wished you had. And there's enormous opportunity in that. That is such good advice. And I feel like I need to uh, put that on a shirt. And didn't, isn't, <laughs> isn't Gandhi the one that said, be the change you wish you, you see in the world? Wasn't he? I, it might've been. So yeah, I look, should know that. Gandhi, Gandhi, <laughs> we're bringing it back. Be the friend you Certainly wish you not. had in the world or something. Look at it. We came full circle, Michael. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome, Molly. That is Fantastic. Uh, I'm going to Google it afterwards and I'm going to feel real bad. Y'all, if you're listening and you're like, that wasn't Gandhi, forgive me. Okay. I don't have all the quotes memorized, but if it is, it's very serendipitous and hilarious. Um, I love it. Michael, I could talk to you forever because there's there's so many things that you are just so wise and uh, just love. Um, But before we go, we get to ask just a couple of questions um, that I ask all my guests here at the end of the show. And that first question is, what is the last thing that made you laugh? It was this morning. I was in cardiac rehab and one of the nurses, her brother-in-law is Nick Bargatze. <gasps> I love Nick Bargatze. Yeah, he's awesome. And so she, this wasn't one of his jokes, but she just she always tries to make us laugh. And so she just read a couple of jokes to us. And I mean, one of them was so funny. I just, I went crazy. It was so good. I love, so my husband and I, I mean, I say we discovered him. We discovered he was new to us during the pandemic. And we watched, we binged his uh, comedy specials on Netflix during the pandemic. Yeah, and we he did had too. this one joke that we laugh about 
all the time. And it was basically where he's talking about how um, common core math. Are you familiar with common core math? I am. Yeah. Yes. So he was talking about how he was trying to help his kid with common core math. And, you know, we have a third grader right now. We're dealing with the common core math. And the analogy he used is fantastic because he's like, he's like, common core math is basically just where you got one math problem and a full sheet of paper and you got to do all this stuff to get to the answer. And then here I am. He's like, I'm staring at it right there in the middle. Like there's old math. Like it's just there. It's right there in the middle. It's like, why can't we just do that? Old math. And he's like, it's like as though somebody were to come and knock on your front door at your house and you're like, you open it and you go, Hey, I'm sorry. You can't come in this way. You actually got to go outside around, (laughs) hop the fence and then come in the back door to get in the house. And then they go, why does the front door not work? He's like, no, no, people still use the front door. Like you can still come in the front door, but this is the new way. You got to go out (laughs) and around and hop the fence. You got to come in the back door. That's the way. That's the new way. That's That's common core math. Anyway, it's because it is common core math is our like current, you know, household battle right now where I'm staring at my third graders homework going, I don't know how to do this. (laughs) I wouldn't know either. That's where you need an Excel spreadsheet. Yes. Yes. Thankfully, my my husband's a math guy. Um, Oh, fantastic. Okay. The second question is, what is the last thing that made you cry? You know, I'm not sure I can come up with a specific thing, but I can tell you this. Uh, The older I've gotten, the easier it is for me to cry. I literally will watch commercials that touch my heart and cry. I love rom-coms and I will cry with rom-com. Those are my, that's my favorite genre of, yes. of movie. And so, so yeah, I, I literally can tear up at the drop of a hat, even re- recounting a story. You know, if I'm recounting a story and it emotionally touched me and sometimes it even happens on stage, like I'll choke up and I'll go like, wow, that's amazing. But I, I frankly, I love that. I used to, Resist it and think it was a weakness. No. But now I think it's actually a strength. I completely agree. And that's why I like this question because it's always interesting to me what people share. Um, because I think it's important for us to to talk about that all of these emotions are like totally normal and and okay. And we don't have to sh- be shy around them. And we don't yeah. have to. Um, yeah, I, I think that's beautiful. I love that. All right. And then my last question is, uh, Michael, every day, how do you choose joy? I start every morning making sure that I'm connected with God, you know, in his presence is fullness of joy. And so I start with prayer and then I read the Bible and then I journal and then I exercise. And that's kind of my preparation. That's my morning ritual. And I think, you know, every day is a new opportunity to choose joy. You know, I may have been a rough day yesterday, but today's a fresh day and I can choose joy. All I have to do is get right in the right frame of mind. And that's how I do it. So good. Michael, this has been a pleasure, a treat, an honor. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing your wisdom. Thank you, Molly. Thanks for having me on. Michael was just as incredible as I knew he would be. I hope that you loved this conversation. I hope you learned something. I have been just so grateful to hear the feedback from so many of you about what you're learning from these episodes. So continue to let me know. So You can post a screenshot on social media. You can send me a DM. I'm at still being Molly or at can I laugh pod on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I would love to hear from you and just let me know what you're thinking and and what you're learning. It is always so encouraging to me. Be sure to tune in next week for my guest, Inez Ribastello. She was working as the beverage director for Windows on the World, which was the restaurant that was at the top floor of Tower One of the World Trade Center. 
She just happened to be in North Carolina on September 11th, 2001, and she wasn't at work that day on that day that we, so you know, so many of us remember. And this is her story of what that was like that day and, you know, losing so many of her friends and co-workers and just the aftermath of it all. And we talk a lot about what our lives are like after a tragedy like that. And I'm telling you, you're going to be just blown away by her story. She is the author of the memoir, Life After Windows, and you're just going to love it. So be sure to tune in next week. And as always, I would just love for you to share this show with a friend, head on over to whatever podcast platform you're listening on and click the subscribe or follow button for the show and take a moment to leave a review. It really, really does help us. And I just am so grateful every time you do it. As always, thank you to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing the show. And as always, I hope something this week makes you laugh till you cry. See you next week.